All right, so we're going to turn now in, in our worship, we're going to turn to Scripture. We're going to continue this morning our sermon series on, on homecomings. You know, all this month we're looking at the ways in which homecomings can be joyful, but also messy and complicated and drawn out. This morning we're going to hear the story uh, from the book of Ezra of a moment of homecoming that was, was very complicated and, and very literally messy. Right? So let me set the scene for you. Uh, in this moment that we're about to hear about happened when, when God's people, uh, the people of the kingdom of Judah, had finally been set free from a long period of captivity in the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians had held the people prisoner for, for many, many decades, and then finally they were set free, and they were able to go back to the city of Jerusalem. And when they got back to the city of Jerusalem, they got ready to build a brand new temple because the old temple had been smashed down. And so when the moment came for the builders to start laying the foundation of the new temple, all the people gathered for a great big time of worship. And that's what we're going to hear about this morning. We're going to hear about that moment of, of homecoming when they started building God a new house, that moment of worship that happened as they got started on this great big project. So here's the story as we have it in the Old Testament book of Ezra, chapter 3, beginning with verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments were stationed to praise the Lord with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people responded with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of families, old people who had seen the first house on its foundations, wept with a loud voice when they saw this house, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted so loudly that the sound was heard far away. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. Amen. Well, back when I was in seminary, back when I was studying to be a pastor, I remember that our professors in seminary warned us over and over again about this thing called the worship wars. They said, you need to be ready because when you graduate from this place, when you go out to be pastors and serve congregations, we are sending you into a battlefield. We are sending you into the worship wars. And what they meant when they said that was the ongoing conflict that was happening back then in the church between people who like the organ and people who like guitars. Now, this kind of conflict was nothing new in the history of the church. For as long as, as followers of Jesus have been getting together to worship God, there has been disagreement and conflict over what is appropriate in worship and what is not appropriate to have in worship. Everything that we take for granted in worship today, all of the things that we think of as, as traditional were controversial at one point or another. So for example, let's talk about the organ. Did you know that the organs had been around for more than a thousand years before people decided that they were going to start putting them into churches? It took a long time for people to start putting organs in churches, and there was a reason for that. Part of the reason that it took so long for people to put organs in churches 
was that organs were associated with carnivals and circuses and frivolous entertainment. People didn't think of the organ as a serious instrument that was proper to use for, for Christian worship. And so it took more than a thousand years before people finally started putting organs in worship. When people like Charles Wesley and Isaac Watts 500 years ago and, and four and 300 years ago started writing hymns for people to use in worship, that was controversial. Now, there were people who said all of the words that we sing and speak to God in worship should come directly out of the pages of Scripture. When we sing hymns to God, we should be singing psalms and not some poem that some young man wrote about how much he loves Jesus. People thought that the, the hymns were lightweight and that they were silly and they weren't scriptural. Even here at Court Street, I know it's hard to believe, but even here at Court Street, we had our share of worship controversy. Back in the early 1900s, about 100 years ago, the young people of the church got together, they saved their pennies, they pooled their money together, and they bought a piano, and they gave it as a gift to the church. And the gift of this piano caused a great scandal and a controversy within the church, because at that time, people in the church associated pianos with taverns and saloons and jazz music. And so there was an emergency meeting of the church council. They got together and they said, what are we going to do about this piano? And finally, they came to a decision. They decided that they were going to make a compromise. They said, here's what we're going to do. We will accept the gift of the piano, but we're going to lock it up. And the key is going to be kept in the parsonage. So anybody who actually wants to play the piano is going to have to go through the pastor. For as long as followers of Jesus have been worshiping together, there have been conflicts and controversy and divisions of opinion over, over what is appropriate and what is not appropriate in worship. And of course, things really started heating up in the late 20th century when the rock and roll generation looked at their parents and their grandparents and said, you know, we got guitars in our bedrooms. We got guitars on the radio. We drive all the way across the country to go to concerts to watch people play guitars at great big music festivals. Why can't we have guitars in the church? And so the rock and roll generation started writing new worship music that sounded like the music that they were listening to on the radio. It came to be called contemporary music or praise and worship music. And, and this music, of course, caused a backlash. Now, their parents and their grandparents looked at all this new music that they were writing and they started making fun of it. They said, you know, there's just not as much wheat in these songs as there was in the old hymns. They started, started calling this new worship music derogatory names like 7-Eleven music. You know what 7-Eleven music is? 7-Eleven music is when you take the same seven words and then you sing them 11 times in a row. That's what people, that's what people call this new worship music. And so this, this controversy bubbled over until we got to the point where I was in seminary and churches were splitting. Churches were dividing because people couldn't agree over what style of worship, what kind of music they were going to have on a Sunday morning. And of course, a whole generation, my generation, looked at all of this fighting and they said, well, if this is what church is about, if all of this fighting is what church is about, then, then I'm not interested. And a whole generation walked out the back door of the church very quietly because of all of the worship wars that were happening in the church. This is what my professors were telling us we needed to be ready for back when I was studying to be a pastor. They said, you need to be ready to go out into the worship wars. You need to know there's a battle happening and you're about to be sent out there. Of all of the things I heard people say about the worship wars back in those days, of all of the, the, the messages that were given to us about how we needed to be ready, I think the thing that, that had the most impact on me and the thing that has stuck with me the longest was a story that was told by Tony Campolo. Tony Campolo is, is an evangelist. 
Uh, he's a professor at a Christian university, and many years ago, I got to hear Tony Campolo speak. And after he was done speaking, he took questions from, from the congregation. And there was one person in the congregation who raised their hand and, and asked them a question. He said, uh, Tony Campolo, what do you think about all this new contemporary music that's being written for worship in the church? This guy was clearly trying to get Tony Campolo to take sides in the worship wars. And so in answer to that question, Tony Campolo told this story. He said, well, at the university where I teach, we've got a chapel service that happens every week. And all the professors and faculty and all the students come to this chapel service every week. He said, a few years ago, I started to notice a shift that was happening in this, this worship service where we were moving away from the traditional hymns that I grew up with. And we were moving more towards this contemporary music, these, these praise choruses. And he said, I'll be honest with you. He said, I didn't like it. He said, I thought it was boring. I thought it was lightweight. I missed all of the theological depth and heft that you got with the old hymns. And I didn't like it. And he said, one, one day we were there in chapel, and it was a particularly bad day. We were singing this song that went, I will sing of your love forever. 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 And he said, after about 10 minutes of singing those same seven words over and over again, he said, I was afraid they meant it. I was afraid that we were going to sing that song forever until Jesus returned. I was afraid that we were never going to get out of that song. He said, and I was bored and I was irritated. And he said, I assume everybody must be as bored and irritated and tired of this song as I was. So I turned around to see if everybody else was checked out and ready to, to move on to the next thing. And he said, I turned around and this is what I saw. He said, behind me, there was a young woman, a student. And I looked at her, and she had her hands up in the air, and her eyes were closed, and there were tears streaming down her cheeks as she sang, I could sing of your love forever. I could sing of your love forever. So I looked at her, and it was clear that she was having some kind of a powerful experience of the presence and the love of God. She was deep in worship in that moment, he said. And as I looked at her standing there, worshiping God, he said, I thought to myself, oh, Tony, oh, you knucklehead. You need to get out of God's way. He said, in that moment, I realized that I had made one of the biggest mistakes we can make in Christian worship, which is that I had made worship all about me. I had made worship about my preferences, about my music, about what I wanted to happen in worship. And I had forgotten just for a moment that worship is not about me. Worship is not a show that the church puts on for me. Worship is a gift of love that the church, all of us, offers together to God. He said, in that moment, I made a decision that any time I was bored or irritated or frustrated with something that was happening in worship, I was going to turn and I was going to look to see who in the congregation it was connecting to God. And then I was going to give God thanks that that person was connecting to God through what we were doing together in worship. He said, I decided in that moment that my worship strategy was to get out of God's way and give God thanks. I love, I love that story. It stayed with me. I think the reason that that story stuck with me all these years is because in a moment when everybody was predicting that the church was going to be divided, that the church was going to be split because of worship, that story gave me hope that actually worship could be the thing that holds the church together. The unity of the church has never been built upon anything as flimsy as our feelings in worship our experiences of worship or our preferences of worship style. The, the unity of the church has always been built upon who it is we direct and offer our worship to on Sunday morning. That's where the unity of the church comes from. That's how it is now. That's how it always has been. 
In this morning's scripture reading, we have the story of a moment when, when a congregation of people gathered together to worship God and two groups of people in the congregation experienced the same moment of worship in two very different ways. So in this morning's scripture reading, we pick up the story of God's people, the, the Israelites, at a moment at one of the crucial turning points in the Bible story. You know, the, the, the people of the kingdom of Judah have been taken captive. They've been carried off to the land of Babylon. The mighty Babylonian Empire attacked the city of Jerusalem, smashed down the walls of the city, burned down all of the homes in the city, reduced the temple, the house of God that King Solomon, the son of King David, had built, reduced it to a pile of smoking rubble, and then carted off all of the people of the city. And the people of Jerusalem lived in captivity in that faraway land, in the land of Babylon, for 10 years, 20 years, 30, 40, 50, 60, they lived in captivity for 70 years they were in exile. And during the time that they were held captive in the land of Babylon, entire generations passed away. And new generations were born. New generations of, of Israelites were born who only knew the city of Jerusalem through the stories that their parents and their grandparents told them around the dinner table and when they were getting ready to go to bed at night. They were raised on visions of, of Jerusalem. They were raised on visions of the temple as it used to be. And their parents and their grandparents would say to them, someday we are going back there. And then it happened. God acted and set the people free. The people went through the wilderness back to the land of J Jerusalem, and they saw that the city was just a, a pile of ruins, that it was nothing but rubble. And so they started the hard work of rebuilding their home. And they knew that the biggest project, that the most important project as they were rebuilding the city of Jerusalem was building a new temple. So from the day the people returned to the city of Jerusalem, they started contributing what they had, what pennies they could save up, what nickels and dimes they could scrounge in that time of hardship and poverty for God's people. They saved and they gave and they gave and they saved for more than a year. For one year and one month, the people contributed to the new temple building fund. And then finally, after all of those months of waiting, they had enough to get started. And so they bought stones and they bought lumber and they hired builders, and then all of the people got together for a great big worship celebration. And all of the priests came in their best robes. They had them wander just for the occasion. And, and all of the trumpet players shined up their instruments until they shone. And all of the cymbal players brought their best cymbals that day. And all of the people gathered together. And then as the builders started laying the foundation of the temple, the people made a great big noise. The cymbal players clanged their cymbals. The trumpeters blew a blast on their trumpets. And the priests began leading the people in a song. The love of the Lord in forever. The love of the Lord endures forever. The love of the Lord endures forever. Over and over and over they sang. And as they sang, some people, some of the young people who were there in the congregation were so moved and overwhelmed by the joy of that moment that they spontaneously shouted out. They shouted out hallelujahs. They shouted out praise to God. They gave a great big shout of joy. But even as the younger generations whose hearts were filled with the vision of what this temple was going to look like when it was finished, even as they shouted out to God for joy, there were other people in the congregation, gray-haired people, people who were 80 years old, people who were 90 years old, people who remembered what Jerusalem used to be, remembered what the temple used to be. There were people who turned away and they wept. In their weeping, their sadness was as loud as those shouts of joy that the young people were lifting up. The same moment of worship caused immense joy for some people and intense pain for other people. 
And this is exactly how it is in worship. This is exactly how it always has been. We have never shared together in a common experience of worship. We have never walked out of this place on a Sunday morning, all of us having experienced the same thing in the same way. And our unity as a church family is not built upon our experience of worship or the way that we worship or the time that we worship. Our unity as a church family is built upon the one to whom we offer our worship. And we're going to need to hold on to that truth for the next few weeks, for the next few months, maybe for the rest of the lifetime of the Court Street United Methodist Church. Last Sunday, we got a look at what worship is going to look like at Court Street for the foreseeable future. We had a whole lot of people who were here in this place last Sunday morning, and it was so good to see all those people here in person. I got home and I checked the online numbers after we finished, and I saw that we still had a very significant part of our congregation, many, many people who were gathered with us for worship online. And that's how it's going to be. From this time onward, we are going to be a truly hybrid congregation. Some of us are going to worship here in this place on Sunday morning. Some of us are going to continue to worship from our living rooms, from our kitchens, from Virginia, from California. There may come a time when some of us worship on Sunday morning and some of us worship on Saturday evening. There may come a time when some of us worship with guitars and some of us worship with organs. There may come moments in worship when the same sermon causes immense joy in one pew and intense pain in another pew. There may come times when we sing a song that causes one person to put their hands in the air and another person to roll their eyes. That's how worship is going to be from this time forward because that's how worship always is. And I believe that we can hold this thing together. I believe that God will hold this thing together if only we can get out of God's way. And remember that the unity of the church is not built upon what we experience or what we feel in worship. The unity of the church is built upon the one to whom we offer our worship. Church is not a show. Worship is not a show that the church puts on for us. Worship is an offering that all of us gather and give together to God. If we can remember that, I believe God can hold us together, even when we're miles apart. Let's pray. God, we need you to hold this thing together. God, help us to get out of your way and help us to get out of our own way. Give us the wisdom to look around and worship when something isn't moving us, when something isn't connecting with us, and see who is being connected to you in that moment. God, give us the wisdom to offer whatever sound we have on a Sunday or a Saturday or a Tuesday or a Thursday, even if it doesn't feel like much to us, knowing knowing that you will look into our hearts and you will be pleased. And God, we give you thanks for these times when we can gather, however we gather, and turn our thoughts and our hearts towards you. Thank you for turning your heart and your thoughts towards us. In Jesus we pray. Amen.